Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you each week with experts and insiders to give you insight into our changing world. This week, our special year-end show featuring forecasts for 2020. Hello and welcome to the Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show, and uh, I've had a great, uh, great 10 days here uh, talking to different, different people that we've had on the show, getting their insights for 2020. Here as we approach the year end, the, the Santa Claus rally is in full swing, the markets keep going up, and uh, I just get lear- learning from people what they expect for, for 2020. So on today's show, I'm really excited, the interviews that I've, uh, that I've done to bring these to you. Uh, we have uh, our, one of our regulars, Jim Urio, uh, Jack Berugian, who predicted the, uh, the bounce back off of last year's December 24th lows, Mona Mahajan from Malian's GI, Steve Weiss of CNBC, Martin Barnes of BCA Research, Jay Bryson, Chief Economist for Wells Fargo. He's going to uh, he's going to give us what his base case for 2020 is. And Neil Dwayne, uh, Chief Economist from Allianz, called in from London. I was so uh, so honored, so privileged for him to uh, to call in. But first, we're going to start uh, as you know we we're Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We know what Wall Street's doing. Uh, Going to start uh, with Washington. With uh, Dan Mahaffey is in uh, in the studio with me. Uh, Dan, uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming in on a on a chilly weekend. No, no problem. You know, just uh, kind of that final rush before the holidays, and I think a gray cold day today makes everyone happier to get away to wherever they're going for the holidays. Yeah, my my sister sent a uh, uh, your your three minute uh, morning brief forecast is going to be coming from. Uh, McIntosh County, Georgia, for the next few days. She just sent me pictures. Uh, she's on on her porch in shorts right now. So, uh, so uh, looking forward to 2020, uh, Dan. Uh, that uh, we've we've had a very interesting 2019. Uh, is is there anything that's going on in 2020? I, I read something, some uh, election or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, if, if you think 2019's been a lot, uh, buckle up for 2020. Uh, we have. Obviously, we're going to see early in, in January how uh, how this impeachment plays out. You know, certainly I don't think anyone thinks there's any chance of President Trump being uh, removed from office, barring something, uh, you know, that's like a, a sea change in the circumstances here. Uh, but, yeah, this this tenor of impeachment and this, you know, now we have this back and forth of do we send the charges to the Senate or not? Uh, that is going to, I think, continue to color this environment uh, and if anything gives us a clue about 2020, look at the tenor of the British election in 2019 and how that played out. The the disinformation, the fake news, the just uh, it was truly a postmodern, post-truth election. Uh, and you had, you know, certainly you had labor using documents that had been hacked by the Russians. You had the conservatives uh, setting up their own websites to fact check themselves. Uh, so uh, social media, information like that, that's going to be a, a real nightmare in 2020. And I think, uh, you know, certainly someone who enjoys the verbal sparring as much as President Trump does, uh, he's going to love uh, if this gets down and dirty. One of the there's a, a Russian, uh, a Russian saying that I that has become very popular during Putin's uh, reign. Uh, when nothing is true, anything is possible, and I'm I'm concerned that uh, that maybe that's the the direction uh, direction things are going. But uh, uh, looking at uh, looking at the presidential election and looking uh, uh, is is Joe Biden really the uh, the front runner? Are are we looking at President Joe Biden in the making? Well, Joe Biden, I would say, is the moderate 
front runner, and I'd say Elizabeth Warren is probably the progressive front runner. And then you have to break it down, certainly the dynamics of Iowa versus New Hampshire, where uh, Pete Buttigieg is strong. Uh, but all of this is based on polling, and we haven't seen someone cast a single vote yet in a caucus or primary. So let's keep looking at it, but understand that, look, there is that, uh, that moderate ground versus that progressive ground. And we all have to take this, too, with a grain of salt, because the, the Democratic Party is still not as liberal as social media would make it seem. Although my concern is that Twitter is quickly becoming to the Democrats what uh, Fox News and talk radio became uh, to Republicans. And as a result, you, you just quickly go with the, the loudest, uh, furthest to the left or right voice rather than uh, you know, where, where the average American actually sits politically. And then we start to uh, f produce websites to, to create our own facts, to, to fact check ourselves, I suppose, that it's, uh, I, I, I see the thread that, uh, that you're pulling there. Um, if, if we do have a, uh, a Joe Biden presidency uh, and he would be uh, 78 at inauguration, is that correct? Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Yeah. So we would uh, ultimately have an octogenarian president. Uh, correct. What what would a uh, uh, a president Joe Biden mean for the economy? What would what would that, what does that moderate uh, wing of the uh, the Democratic Party mean uh, in in economic terms? Well, that that moderate wing of the party, I think you would see a lot more along the lines of what you saw under the Obama administration than what's being opposed by uh, proposed by Warren or Sanders. Uh, certainly, you would probably look at the. Uh, you know, the GOP tax cuts probably wouldn't stick around for much longer. Although, again, we're playing out a lot of assumptions on also, you know, does the Senate shift? Uh, what kind of uh, balance are we looking at in Congress for, for any president's goals here? Uh, but the Biden uh, economic platform, I imagine to be much like the Obama platform. You're not going to see massive uh, tax increases. You're going to see, you know, perhaps further expansion of social programs. You're going to try and look for things where, there already seems to be consensus around paid parental leave, uh, perhaps expansion of those things, much more incremental progressivism than what you would imagine from a, a Sanders-Warren type of uh, presidency. So that, that brings us to the, the question of one of the, the things that uh, uh, the Obama presidency had to deal with was a, a, very, hostile, uh, a very hostile Congress. As the, the demographics have changed since, uh, since 2012, uh, 2008, with, uh, with uh, the first Obama election, does, does a Biden or a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar or a Bloomberg uh, presidency, are they going to have the same congressional opposition, or do, you, do, we, see a, do we see a potential of a, of a Democratic sweep of, uh, of uh, both houses of Congress? And if there if there is a if if the Republicans do hold on to one or two houses, is it going to be the continued uh, radical obstructionism, or does the Republican Party begin to moderate back towards uh, back away from its right wing to to find the center? Well, I, I don't think the the Republican Party is going to moderate uh, that easily. You know, assuming. Uh, you know, win or lose, President Trump is still going to be a major political force on the right. Uh, the the communications infrastructure that is set up to, uh, you know, with Fox News, media like that, the, the Republicans have a very strong uh, messaging and, uh, you know, at least where the electoral position of the party is. I don't imagine there being a sudden kumbaya moment if a Democratic <laughs> president gets elected. Um, certainly what will be interesting to see is um, 
thus far, is there a difference in the opposition because we just don't know what impact race had on how much of the Republican opposition to Obama was driven? And maybe that dynamic changes slightly. Um, but beyond that, though, I think we need to see it's perhaps going to be generational time frame you look at to see if this uh, if this fever in our politics breaks. I don't think this is something that just one election is going to resolve. Speaking of generational, Joe Biden is not the only septuagenarian running. Michael Bloomberg is in his uh, late 70s as, as well. How, with Bloomberg, how, how long does he hang around? Uh, what, what does a Bloomberg uh, campaign need to see to continue into the summer? Um, and, and what uh, does Bloomberg compromise with somebody? Are there coalitions that are going to be formed? Or is he just going on his own way? Or, it, it, or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell because, it, look, he's come in recently, but he still actually has a, you know, at least a, a solid single digits uh, polling number, which is better than a lot of the people who'd been in the race for a while had been. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of people in the Democratic Party who say, why are you using your money to do this and not helping elect senators? And I understand he does have a, a, a few dollars. That, he does. That he, he, yeah. he has a little bit. To I, spend. I hear, yes, there was a some sort of a. a financial information company he had that was quite successful um but they uh what they want to be you know certainly looking at is okay you get to the bloomberg strategy of there's no clear front runner coming out of iowa and new hampshire and suddenly there's uh he can use his war chest for these super tuesdays where where it quickly goes from being an iowa uh, New Hampshire, then South Carolina nominating process to quickly becoming a national uh, primary. And that's where I think both Biden and Bloomberg want to survive to because that's their best bet. Um, but either of them coming out of Iowa or New Hampshire very, very weak, or if, uh, you know, somehow Buttigieg sweeps those first two, then you have a very interesting dynamic coming out of that, that, that then you want to say, okay, are we building coalitions? Who's starting to talk about running mates? Things like that. With running mates, uh, that that again, uh, because of the age of our uh, of of the candidates, that seems to me to be something that's uh, that's important. Uh, but how important is the the VP where we are looking at a potential octogenarian president with the VP selection? Has anyone learned the McCain lesson uh, that that Sarah Palin seemed to counterbalance, uh, but ended up sort of uh, I I think was was sunk McCain's campaign. I don't think that he had any chance after that, but uh, but that's that's my thought. But is, is there a Sarah Palin mm -hmm. out there that just completely throws a spanner in the in uh, in the in the works? And how important is that VP candidate? Or is that going to be something that the 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 media and the electorate is really going to be focused on? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see how um, you know, at least if you have one of these more progressive uh, candidates come forward. Do they go with a more centrist vice president or vice versa? You know, what do we see in terms of uh, balancing the ticket in that way? Um, so much about 2008 with Sarah Palin, the financial crisis, the McCain-Obama dynamic. That was almost a sui generis type of uh, election. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, the Sarah Palin lesson has been so thoroughly learned that um, I think everyone's vetting their potential VP candidate back to the choices they made in kindergarten. <laughs> um, but what, what you also have, too, is like what's going to be the surprise? You know, if you look at the Democratic primary and the Democratic electorate, uh, you know, for how long was Buttigieg's McKinsey 
uh, time considered a scandal. You know, well, we didn't find out that he was, you know, saying that they should grind up orphans and make them into pharmaceuticals. But you would think uh, on the left, you know, how uh, how might someone's actual corporate experience or business sector experience be a liability uh, as you're considering how you balance your ticket? But at the same time, um, let's just see how these coalitions shake out. And I think the, the, the lesson of Sarah Palin was that everyone is going to be so thorough about their pick in the future that we, we may never see that type of a, of a situation again. With the, uh, the, the interviews that I've done that uh, we're going to hear uh, in the next segment, uh, I've, one of the things that I asked almost every, uh, every one of our experts is, what are the markets going to do in 2020? Of course, no one can answer that mm-hmm. because no one knows exactly what's going to happen, but, but they're, uh, they're, they're base case. But, uh, uh, so, uh, Dan, what's going to happen in the election in 2020? Who's the, who's the Democratic <laughs> candidate and, uh, and, and what happens in, uh, in November 2020? November 2020, I'm not going to uh, say who the Democratic candidate is yet, um, but I will tell you, it's going to be not an election where it's about swinging to the to the middle. I think everyone is going to be so focused on driving as much of their turnout to the side. Uh, we are we are polarized. We are we are not only polarized. We are galvanized. That was a, a statement I heard in the Cook Political Report this morning that I think was a, a, a fantastic way of describing this. And that attitudes are set so firmly between a democratic urban, suburban, educated, diverse coalition and a rural, ex-urban, Republican, deindustrialized coalition. And it's just going to be uh, about getting those coalitions out to the polls and seeing, you know, perhaps if you're not swinging people, do we do the have the Republicans lost enough votes in the suburbs and among women and among educated voters uh, that they just can't make up for that demographically with uh, older white or uh, Rust Belt voters. That leads me to a thought about 2021 with that uh, radicalization of politics. Does that bleed over into policy, or do we have uh, do we have candidates that can separate that ginning up the base from what is what is actual policy that will benefit not not only their base, not the ideological uh, ideologies of the base. But uh, the country as a whole, uh, do you do you see do you see much hope for 2021? Look, I see is I, I see some challenge at least because no matter how we come out of this, I just foresee Congress being so narrowly uh, any majority in Congress being so narrow that whoever is president is going to still have to use a lot of executive authority, executive orders, the the rulemaking process. And those are not the kind of things that drive consensus. That's brute force, brute, uh, brute politics. And that's not really going to, to drive, uh, like I said, that, that mythical kumbaya moment we think of. I, I don't see that happening. Thank you, Dan Mahaffey, for, for being on, for being with us uh, for all of uh, season three and being with us this year. Look forward to having you back in January. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey, uh, Senior Vice President for the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And uh, our great friend here on the show, and uh, always great to have you, Dan. We'll be back on the Farcast with interviews from some of our from some of our guests over the uh, over the year. I've reached out to them. People have called me in from all over the country, from all over the world, to give me their thoughts on 2020. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you on the Farcast. 
Welcome back to the Farcast. My name is Harry Jennings. I'm producer for the show. We just had a great segment with Dan Mahaffey giving us a forecast of what he sees in politics and how that may impact the economy moving forward uh, in 2020 and even beyond. So one of the things that I'm really privileged here on the Farcast, being the producer, is I get to talk to experts and insiders every week as I'm as I'm setting up the show, as we talk between segments. And it's, it's great listening to, to these people who have such such sharp minds, uh, some of the smartest people in our industry, and so what we've done for for this show, for the for the best of show, is to ask them to give us some some in- information, some ideas, what their forecasts are, what their ideas are, what the base case is, what they see as the potential opportunities and potential threats for 2020. Let's get straight into the interviews and listen to what some of the experts we've had on the forecast this year think about next year. We're here with uh, with regular Jim Murio, uh, who's uh, joined us today from uh, from the Chicago uh, Board of Trade and and proprietor of Brants of Palatine. <laughs> so, uh, Jim, uh, great uh, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, the the big question that everybody uh, wants to know the answer to, but nobody really does know the answer to, is what's the market's going to do in two thousand twenty? But uh, but what do you what do you still see as your uh, as your base case? What's your what's your forecast for the okay. coming year? Here, here's my belief, and you know, to me, I'm I'm a trader, so short term and medium time frames I'm more comfortable with. So when someone asks me a prediction for a whole year out, it's a little bit terrifying. But again, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I I'm equal to the challenge. I think here's what I think. Here's my base case: is that I believe the the magic happens in the stock market when not just when the Fed is dovish, but when it's dovish and the market perceives it to be slightly a mistake. So now what we have here is a dovish Fed juxtaposed against an ongoing trade talk that the Fed doesn't really know what the ramifications of that will be and how, how that will affect the macroeconomic condition. So they'll stay dovish. So that's what I believe will happen, and that's what fuels my bullishness at least into the first quarter of next year. And, you know, what the heck, why not spread it out for the whole year? <laughs> okay. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the Fed, uh, do, you, do you see any changes in monetary policy in, 20, in, in 2020, or do you take them at their word that they're, they're on the sidelines? Uh, do, you, do you see anything that well, can change that? I do take them at their, their word. I think that the, the market is the, – the, uh, the, the numbers are too strong for them to increase any of the dovish rhetoric, and I think they're too terrified to start talking hawkish and pretend that they're going to hike rates anytime soon. Because I don't, I, I don't know that the market will be able to handle that. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, optimism built into uh, to the stock market that could be taken away quickly if all of a sudden they switch to, to hawkish, which I don't think they'll do. So I do think they're on the sidelines, and I think, like I said, it's a balance between the trade talks against a pretty decent economic background. Now, uh, since you know, since you do work on the uh, on uh, the Chicago Board of Trade, you you take a look at the the commodity prices and and some of the technical trends there that uh, that those of us who are on the equity side don't uh, uh, aren't nearly as as familiar with those technical issues. Do do what you're seeing in the commodity uh, the commodity markets? Do those are there any indications of a of a bullish or bearish sentiment? Uh, any any changes that you're seeing there that matter to the bigger equity market? Well, I think what when I look at things like gold and silver, for instance, I I, I want to know if they think that there's any sort of inflation. And after the last Fed meeting, when when uh, Jay Powell talked about letting inflation run a little bit, um, you know, before.
before he was willing to take a, a stance against it. Gold that day did really well, but there's been no follow-through. So I think both gold and silver don't think there's going to be any inflation at all. Crude, of course, marches to a much different drummer. I do think after a couple of years of energy prices being a little bit under pressure, I do think there's going to be a rally in crude prices. Uh, you know, those are the only ones that I trade, really. I don't look all that often at the, uh, at the stuff you can eat. I mostly look at the stuff that's uh, mm-hmm. the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, what would you like to see happen in 2020? You know, if you if you could just you know wave your magic wand and you know one thing that would impact the uh, the the economy or the markets, uh, what what would you like to see happen? Here's what I'd like to see happen, and it's it's pretty distinct. Is that it's an election year, and a lot of time over the last 10 to 12 years, the different parties have been one being business friendly and one you know, running on, reigning in corporate excess. And we're seeing that again in this election. And by the way, I don't think saying that is even remotely political. I think it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So I think what I want to not see is any, even not just for the president, but for any different um, political positions in, in the highest levels of, of candidates who want to rein in business excess and are trying to paint corporate America as the villain that always gets us into trouble, which I do think that part is nonsense, but they do it all the time. If they start to gain steam, I will worry about the rally and worry about, you know, the, uh, the expansion in general. Mm-hmm. So with the, with that as the, the background, uh, what, what advice do you have for the, the retail investor for, for Michael Farr's Fred and Ethel out there? Uh, what... I always say when he says this, that first of all, that, I don't, you know, I don't give advice. I give advice to, to uh, you know, my clients. However, I am a retail investor at uh-huh. times, and I do, I do position myself. And this is something that I, I remind people of all the time. I'm a bull. I'm on this show all the time, and I talk about how much of a bull I am. Mm-hmm. Just last week, I, I repositioned my long-term portfolio because of the big rally we had in stocks. I think if you rebalance and don't everybody gets greedy, as the stock market rallies. And then all of a sudden, when there's a correction, you're like, wow, I had a lot of money invested in stocks. You avoid that by setting one or two times a year. I do it usually every six months. I look at my long-term investment and say to myself, did stocks rally a bunch, leaving me with too much exposure to risk? The answer to that question for me last week was yes. So I rebalanced. I sold almost you know, between 8 and 10% of my total stock holdings mm-hmm. uh, to go forward into 2020, despite the fact that I'm still bullish in my trading account, I'm still long. Mm-hmm. Okay. Always great advice from Jim Urio. Know what you own and why you own it. We're here with Mona Mahajan, U.S. strategist for Allianz GI. Mona, great, uh, great to have you with us. Uh, you've been one of our uh, our favorite guests. People have uh, have asked when you're going to be back on. I appreciate you giving us a few minutes here today. Great, really appreciate it. So great to be back on. So uh, the question that everybody wants to know, of course, is the, the, the question that nobody has an answer to. Well, what's the market's going to do in 2020? But uh, what's, what's your best uh, forecast for what you're seeing the, the equity markets in 2020? And, and so what's, what's your base case moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we've had a tremendous run in 2019. I think when all said and done, we'll be up about 28% in the S&P. So clearly a stellar year, not only in equities, but across asset classes, including fixed income, areas like gold, and even the U.S. dollar, which accelerated um, 2 to 3% this year. Now, when we look into 2020, um, a couple things come to mind. One, we do think S&P returns can be positive, most likely in line with earnings growth, and we do see earnings growth in the mid-single digits range next year. 
Um, what we are also thinking about more carefully this year for 2020 is whether the global and rest of world could actually play some catch up. And more and more, we're thinking that um, that that segment, that region is likely to outperform the U.S. One, because they are going to play some catch up, but two, because uh, they were actually hit harder in, in the tariff trade escalation in the last year or two. And so as that tension starts to ease slowly but steadily, um, that segment, you know, thinking about Europe and Asia in particular, uh, is poised to do better. And then thirdly, you know, they are exposed generally to more cyclical sectors. And as we've seen, the cyclical story is uh, poised to outperform. And so, you know, we think about, um, we, we continue to like the U.S., but perhaps like global rest of the world and even parts of EM um, even more in 2020. Mm-hmm. Moving from that, uh, what would you like to see happen in 2020? What, uh, 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 even if unlikely, what would you would you see as a being a, a, po- a possible stimulus that if you could ma- wave your magic uh-huh. wand that you'd like to see? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, first and foremost, what comes to mind is we need some execution against some of these initial deals we've gotten at the end of 2019. You know, it was great to see um, Brexit take a step forward with the election of Boris Johnson. What we'd like to see in 2020 is um, the commitment towards an orderly exit process and plan. Uh, it was great to see U.S.-China phase one um, in theory or on paper um, or at least verbally be, to, uh, be agreed upon. But what we'd like to see is that being signed and enforced and perhaps some details come out or further details come out. And then maybe even uh, some progress towards a phase two deal. And then finally, of course, the presidential election in 2020, which looms large right now, um, we'd love to see some sign that this will not be a disruptive process, uh, that the new administration or new president um, will not be overly disruptive to markets in particular. Uh, And then finally, you know, what would be really nice is if we continue to see these signs of stabilization in both the U.S. and global economy, um, in the PMI numbers, in M1 money growth, and even in earnings. Working from uh, from that uh, notion of, of disruption, uh, that the you know, potentials that are out there. What uh, the the converse of that question? What do you? What's your biggest fear happening in yeah. in two thousand twenty? And even if unlikely, what do you see that that could substantially disrupt the base case? Yeah, you know, I'd say uh, one of our biggest fears that we're watching carefully is that you know, despite a phase one deal, um, is it too late? You know. Would manufacturing or will manufacturing continue to slow and then ultimately bleed into the consumer economy, which has obviously been the strength here in the U.S. in particular? Um, And then if that happens, perhaps we are facing a recession or downturn after all. Now, keep in mind, that's our worst fear. We don't see that as our base case, but it is something we think about as a tail risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the second one is, you know, what we talked about earlier, just that the election um, turns in a direction that becomes very disruptive. Mm-hmm. So, with the, uh, the the threats and the opportunities that are out there, uh, what how would you break that down as advice for the the retail investor for for Michael Farr's Fred and Ethel uh, uh, tuning <laughs> in to the to the forecast every week? What what advice would you give them for 2020? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think 2020 generally we're heading into the year with a benign backdrop. We have low rates, we have low inflation, and we have low steady growth. Uh, this is what we call a mild Goldilocks scenario. So not a bad place to be for equity investors and retail investors in particular. Uh, what we would say is take risk, but stay active, stay diversified, and stay somewhat up in quality. 
you know, there's reasons out there for cautious optimism, but volatility is likely to remain elevated, and we are a bit more susceptible to, you know, potential economic or political shocks to the system. So overall, good backdrop, good year for retail, but just stay alert as we continue through the year. Here with Martin Barnes from BCA Research. Uh, Martin, uh, what's your forecast on the Fed and any changes uh, that you see in monetary policy uh, over the next year? I see the Fed being on hold. I think it's hard to see them cutting rates any further, absent some big unexpected shock. Um, But with the unemployment rate at this level, the economy doing fine, I don't think there's any need for any more monetary stimulus. And they'll be very hesitant to to, to, to raise rates in an election year. So I, I would expect rates to be where they are today in a year's time. Do you see, uh, do, is the, the bond market going to change, or is the bond market going to, to mimic what the uh, what the Fed is doing? So would you expect to see any well, substantial the, changes there? Yeah, the, well, so the bond market does take its cues from the Fed. I mean, low short rates anchor down bond yields, but the bond market will be looking ahead a bit further. So, um, you know, we might see some inflation pressures picking up uh, mm-hmm. next year, the second half of next year. So the bond market will be perhaps starting to price in um, a renewed hike in, in, in rates. I would expect bond yields to be under a little bit of upward pressure. It's going to be a balancing act between fears of higher inflation and fears that we're getting closer to a recession at some point, you know, and how those two opposite forces balance out is a little bit tr- tricky to, to see. Mm-hmm. So I guess the bottom line is I can't see huge moves in bond yields, mm-hmm. but I would be more concerned of them going up than down. Mm-hmm. What's your uh, What's your forecast for the, for the stock market in 2020? What do you think uh, equity prices are going to do? Well, look, it's, it's, it's an incredibly expensive market at this point. We're trading at 20 times trailing operating earnings, so that's 25% above its historical average. But with interest rates at this level, you know, with with a dividend yield above 10-year bond yields and an earnings yield of around 5%, that gives a lot of protection to the stock market. So uh, I... I think the path of least resistance is for the market to move higher. Um, should people be piling in? No. I mean, there's a difference between where you forecast the market's going to be and what the right strategy is. I mm-hmm. would think that you know the right strategy would be, be to be taking money off the table, not putting it on over the coming year. Mm-hmm. Leading from that, uh, what what would your advice be for the retail investor? I would say, you know, it's been a phenomenal run. Um, As Michael Farr said, you know, 25% rise this year. Um, The upside from here could go up another 10%, you know, maybe even more than that. But Mm -hmm. so what? You know, I think this is a time to be locking in profits because, you know, standing in the sidelines where the market creeps higher is not the end of the world, you know, given the possibility of a big correction at some point, which will be hard to time. So unless you're a very risk-oriented investor, which most retail investors are not, most of them are fairly conservative, I would be locking in profits here and just taking money off the table as the year wears on. Mm-hmm. 
Now, coming up in uh, in 2020, what what's the one thing that you would really like to see happen in 2020, and how likely do you think that 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 perfect scenario for Martin Barnes uh, is is actually likely to occur? Oh my goodness! You know, world peace isn't that what you're supposed to call for? <laughs> Wasn't that one of the some great movie or something you're supposed to always wish for world peace? Uh-huh. Um, you know, political re- reduced political uncertainty and a, a, a saner trade policy from the current administration, I think, would would go a long way to improving the attitudes of corporate executives and make them more willing to invest. Um, and I'm hopeful that that will happen. But, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. we're, yeah, uh, you know, I don't want to get into politics at this point, but uh, the president seems to have very strong views on, on trade deficits as a source of evil, and it makes them pretty hostile to, to trade, and I, I don't share that view. Mm-hmm. Martin Barnes with us on the forecast from BCA Research, wishing for world peace and failing that, uh, perhaps a little more political stability. We're here with Dr. Uh, Dr. Jay Bryson, Chief Economist for Wells Fargo and a regular guest here on, on the Farcast. Thanks for joining us, Jay. I uh, certainly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, just looking forward to 2020, wanted to ask you to, uh, uh, to begin. Um, what's your forecast on the Fed? Do you see any changes to monetary policy in 2020, or did the three cuts give them enough, enough insurance that they have breathing room and will be able to stay, stay on the sidelines? Yeah, our expectation at this point um, is that they will be on, on the sidelines. We had originally thought that it might cut in the first um, quarter, and that was predicated on the view that there really wasn't going to be a trade deal with, with China. Um, you know, at the time, nobody really seemed to know. Um, it, it seems like we've got some sort of, you know, let's call it a mini trade deal with China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, markets have behaved pretty well. There hasn't been a tightening in financial conditions that the Fed would want to offset. And so, uh, you know, as as they say, they would need to see a material change in their forecast for them to change policy at this point. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, you know, their outlook is very similar to ours. I don't think you're going to see a material change. And so we think that the Fed's on, on hold throughout 2020. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the, the Fed staying uh, staying put, obviously sovereign rates are not going to, wouldn't change that much. But do you see that holding for interest rates in the broader bond markets? Uh, right now, uh, the, the triple B, the lowest gra- investment grade, uh, the difference between that and the highest grade of, of uh, junk bonds is fairly narrow. Uh, and the bond markets seem to be stable. Do you see that continuing in 2020? Or are you worried about a break on, on that side of the markets? So our expectation would be that, you know, further out the curve, when you look at Treasury rates, we would think that they may drift up a little bit. You know, if you look at the yield on the 10-year, I mean, even as we talk right now, it's a little bit below 2%. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of 2020, I could see that a little bit higher um, than, than 2%. The idea is, you know, sooner or later, if this expansion continues, uh, you know, the Fed's going to start to think about maybe hiking rates at some point, And the market kind of would react to that. So, you know, you would tend to see, um, you know, a little bit of drift up at the long end of the curve in terms of Treasury yields. Now, what, how that relates to, you know, corporate bonds, um, that's really going to depend upon, the, you know, the spreads there. 
unless there's a real um, hiccup coming in, in the economy, which is not our expectation, we would think that spreads would generally remain fairly tight. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, maybe they widen out a little bit because they are so tight right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, unless you were to see some real trouble hitting the economy, I would expect to see that corporate bond spreads over treasuries would remain, you know, more or less in the, in the, the ranges they've been in in the last year or so. The last time you were on the forecast, you said uh, that you were thinking the the economy's okay uh, and we're going to continue along around that two percent growth level. Uh, do you do you still see that? Has anything happened in the last few weeks that calls that into question that we may see more or less than that uh, that two percent? Or is that that still the working base case? Well, I think that our our forecast, I would, I would the, the risks to it, I think, are pretty well balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see, um, you know, a, a higher um, rate than two percent. Um, now that we've eliminated some of the uncertainty as it relates to the trade war, you could potentially see business fixed investment spending accelerate a little bit in 2020. Um, but I wouldn't say that we're looking at double digit sorts of growth rates there. Mm-hmm. Um, although some of the uncertainty with trade policy has gone away, it, it clearly has not all gone away. We still have tariffs on China. We haven't completely, we haven't taken them off. We just haven't put any new ones on. Um, and then, you know, obviously you have, you know, election coming up that may cause some bis- some businesses to maybe hold off as well. So I could see some stronger business fixed investment spending growth. But again, I wouldn't get, you know, thinking you're, you're talking about double digit sorts of growth rates um, here. Mm-hmm. So uh, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the possibility of a, of a hiccup out there that uh, the, the sort of unexpected. What what do you most fear happening in 2020, uh, even if very unlikely? Uh, what what kind of hiccup do you think is is plausible, even if unlikely, that, that could derail things? Well, one thing that kind of springs to mind is, you know, for instance, I mean, obviously there's political tension in, in Hong Kong right now, right? And if that thing were to take a real turn for the worse, you were see Chinese troops actually start to march into, into Hong Kong, that's, that's kind of a game changer geopolitically, and mm-hmm. uh, that would have major ramifications. Now, is that likely? I wouldn't think it's likely, but I don't think anyone wants to say the probability that's zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's certainly out there. And there's other, a lot of other sorts of geopolitical sorts of conflicts. Uh, we, you know, we all know we live in a world right now that's, you know, fairly um, uh, uncertain in terms of, of geopolitics. And one of those things could uh, could get us at, 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 um, at any time um, as, as well. Mm-hmm. Given the the general positive uh, positives that you see in the economy and the Fed staying on the sidelines, do do you feel that the uh, the equity markets are in a fairly healthy place? Is this uh, or is there anything that we really need to be looking at the the markets uh, breaking away from the uh, from the the broader economy? Well, I mean, as far as the underlying economic fundamentals go and how that relates to the you know to the overall equity market, I mean, what I would say is. You know, what we're looking for is, you know, modest paces of growth. We're not looking for anything supercharged. Uh, I would think that that's supportive of, of stock prices. We're not looking for the Fed to get overly aggressive. Um, I would think that that would be, you know, generally supportive of of, of, of stock prices as well. Um, and, um, you know, in general, you know, we continue to look for the economy to expand. Um, and uh, there's no reason to expect um, necessarily a recession um, in, in the next 12 months. I mean, clearly a recession, if one were to occur, uh, would be very, very negative for stock prices. 
but you know, given the fact that we continue to expect the, the expansion to remain intact, um, you know, I, I, again, I think that's a, something that would be supportive of, of the broader stock market. We hope you're enjoying the special year-end forecast and the interviews with some of the leading experts we've hosted on the forecast over the last year. They've come back and are sharing their thoughts on 2020. The sound of sleigh bells means that the Santa Claus rally is in full swing, but will it last? Let's go back to our guests and learn what they see coming in the new year. We're here with uh, Steve Weiss from uh, Short Hills Capital, and, and uh, everyone knows him from CNBC. Uh, Steve, uh, uh, to begin with, what's your, you know, looking at you as a market guest, so uh, what's your forecast for the stock market in 2020? What do you, what do you see as your, your most likely base case? My base case for the market next year is that it's higher. The market goes up 80 to 85 percent of the time since the market started trading over 100 years ago and well over 100 years ago, and I expect that to continue. Um, in terms of a, of a target, I don't typically put targets. I'm frankly not all that concerned about market direction, although, of course, I prefer it to be positive. I'm more focused on stock and thematic selection than the market overall. Uh, but if I were forced to pick a target for the market, I would say 10%, which is basically historic numbers. I'm not concerned by the fact that the market's going to finish this year up uh, 26%, 28%, pick a number, because if you take a look at, at, um, at market performance over the past 50 years or so, uh, even going back, you'd see that the direction that large moves in the market over 30% did not mean that the market couldn't be up a similar amount the following year. However, every time is different, and this time is particularly different. So uh, we can debate all day, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Santayano who, who would say that those who don't know history are doomed <laughs> to repeat it, uh, or we can, you know, say, hey, look, there is no playbook for this market. I prefer the latter. Um, so we've had 90 central banks uh, do some sort of easing in 2019 alone. That's powerful. Now, my concern is on the market going forward is that it seems that from the people that we have coming on the show mm -hmm. that, uh, that there's a high expectation that earnings growth will return and return to mid-single digits. Um, there's no evidence of that right now uh, at all, either mm -hmm. abroad or in the U.S. Uh, sure, there are some select groups, but broadly, we don't see evidence of that. So if that's not the case, I do think we'll see some growth. Uh, if that's not the case, then you've got to count on a, on a second year of, uh, of basically uh, multiple expansion. And it's very difficult to bet on multiple expansion uh, without some other catalyst there. Mm -hmm. So we know our Fed is on hold. Uh, that's the worst case, they say. Um, so, but, uh, but I think that, you know, you, you, if you're an investor, you have to be optimistic. I'm optimistic. I'm confident in the portfolio that I have. Uh, if the market's down, you can never forecast those, those black swan events as to what's uh, hitting the market. None of them have been forecastable, which is why the declines are always so big. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you ever should be fully invested. There will be volatility, and you should take that 
opportunity to look at volatility as uh, opportunity and not risk and put more money in during a uh, issues with the market. Now, of course, if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders uh, rises to uh, the top and is the uh, presumptive uh, uh, candidate for Democratic Party, uh, I don't believe that either one stands a chance of winning, but that will cause more volatility in the market for sure. And that is probably one of the biggest risks to the market. Mm-hmm. Absent the trade deal going going awry. <laughs> going sideways on us uh, some more. Uh, what would you most like to see happen in 2020 if, uh, if, if you just had a magic wand and had you know, one thing that would impact the economy uh, uh, in the markets? What, what would you like to see uh, happen out there? Earnings growth. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see. I'd like to see earnings growth. I'd like to see Bloomberg as president. Uh, <laughs> you know, I still think it's it's very difficult to invest with uh, under the current administration that uh, that governs by tweets and that on one day says I don't look at the markets and on the next day, literally the next day after the jobs number. Say you know, tweeting the market is responding well to the jobs numbers, uh, and, and the policies are also uh, you just don't know. So without it's undeniable that he's been positive for the market, um, but two of the presidents that have been terrible for the markets, uh, Obama and Clinton, had the two best performing markets for them. Reagan who was obviously pro-business, didn't have a good market under him. It only started taking off in the last part of the second term. Mm-hmm. So presidents can't really influence it. I'm also very concerned with um, uh, with uh, sustainability investing, ESG factors. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, we don't believe, the administration doesn't believe in, in, uh, in what's going on, global warming, et cetera. The reason why... I mentioned that, is that in Europe, uh, it's not universal, but it's more than occasional. Uh, they, are, uh, they are being ranked on their, um, on their susceptibility to environmental issues going mm-hmm. forward. It's, it's a risk measurement uh, in stocks there. And ESG has been the fastest growing asset class uh, I've seen it's 26% of all U.S. assets and 40% of assets globally, and growing 35% a year. Hmm. So that's going to uh, that's one of the reasons why I believe uh, that energy stocks are down, uh, fossil fuels, ESG funds can't own them. So mm-hmm. to the extent that we are are climate deniers uh, here, and to the extent that more investors are involved with ESG. And you could see, uh, you have to take that into your analysis of what stocks you buy. Mm-hmm. So taking all of that as the, 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 the overall worldview, do you have any uh, uh, specific advice for the retail investor as we're, as we're turning over the year, you know, like you say, having done 26, 28% uh, uh, and, and looking forward to uh, a, a little bit of an uncertain uh, 2020? What, what would you tell the retail investor, just Fred Nuffle out there? Yeah, you know, uh, not to be picky, you, but every year is uncertain. Every day, every month is uncertain as an investor, mm-hmm. which, it's why, which is why Michael does this well. 
take a long-term view. And it's people like Michael that, which I don't do because I run a, a specific strategy for, uh, although th that may change, uh, that will change uh, as I add another strategy, um, which I'm not ready to announce in the new year. But everybody's got a different appetite for risk. Everybody's got a different appetite for equity. So if you're if you're a 75 year old retiree, uh, you shouldn't have all your money in equities. Um, so you know, retail investors, uh, I think, have gotten beyond the point where they're watching the market every day and reacting to it. Mm -hmm. And the market has had these V-shaped recoveries, like we saw in December of last year where they go down 10%, some groups go down 20 30%, and they recover fairly quickly. At some point, that ends. But the time to sell is not on those major dips. That's the time to put money in. But there's also nothing wrong with taking profit. profits. You never go broke taking a profit. But it's up to everybody's individual risk profile. Um, if things don't grow the moon, and ultimately, uh, when everybody's going one way and everybody seems to be positive on the market, then uh, then it catches up to you. So my advice to retail investors is to find professional investors uh, to disassociate them with the daily machinations of the market. Mm -hmm. Great advice from our guest Steve Weiss of Short Hills Capital and CNBC. Don't get too involved in the machinations of the market. Keep your discipline and focus on what's important for you and your portfolio. I'm here with Neil Dwayne, global strategist from Allianz GI today, uh, one of the uh, guests that we've gotten a lot of feedback here on the Farcast. Uh, Neil, thank you for, uh, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. As global strategist, wanted to start with a global, uh, global question. Uh, we've, we've seen easing from the Fed. There's a change in the, uh, the leadership at the European Central Bank, so going to be changes at the Bank of England coming up. What do you see as the trends in monetary policy going into 2020? Well, I think it's a, it's a very good question, but unfortunately, I think it's also a relatively simple answer. The, the central banks are very nearly all in. They are all asking for more fiscal stimulus, and therefore we have this rather hypocritical situation where the governor of the Federal Reserve is asking uh, the U.S. government to borrow less money and have less deficit spending, and then uh, produces QE4 and uh, monetizes the whole deficit. So I think we're in a situation where the central banks are very scared about the next recession. They know they cannot do much else with monetary policy, and so they are very happy to support politicians uh, with whatever fiscal stimulus uh, they wish to uh, implement in their policies. So how does that uh, how does that affect the bond markets? Not just uh, not just global sovereign markets, but what do you see interest rates more broadly in the in the bond markets uh, moving in 2020, if at all? Well, I think what we what we see in the short term is whilst there are nerves around the, 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 um, the, the health of the global economy, and I would say particularly the health of the U.S. economy, uh, we don't expect to see very much action. The Fed has been very clear um, that they think the U.S. economy is in a good place. That is not something I share. Um, uh, the European economy has already taken the hit of the trade war and the slowdown in China. Uh, and so we think most uh, monetary policy is on hold but they will continue to answer your question to support the bond markets 
with either quite aggressive monetary uh, uh, quantitative easing, as we're seeing in Europe through the ECB and the Bank of Japan, or I would argue the repo support we're seeing in the U.S. is effectively allowing the leveraged players in the U.S. financial markets not to have to sell their U.S. treasuries. They've been able to roll them over with the repo financing. So the central banks are providing the fuel for this liquidity run we're seeing in Q4 this year. How do you see that interacting with some of the other forces on the equity markets uh, as we, you know, particularly in the U.S. as we're at uh, very high valuations? You mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned trade. Uh, how do you see all of that? Uh, what, what's your crystal ball look like uh, for, the, for equity markets in 2020? Well, I, I have to say, I think um, because we've seen the Fed take the insurance cuts, I think there is no doubt that, that many international investors believe that we will see a stabilization in the U.S. economy uh, towards the second half of, of next year, justifying uh, the, um, uh, the level of um, optimism and valuation that we see in the U.S. equity market. Our underlying uh, economic prognosis is, I'm afraid, more gloomy. We would have the U.S. as a 50-50 recession candidate next year. And if you overlay that economic fundamental uh, with the uh, concerns that we have over the um, aggressive political environment that we would expect to see next year between President Trump uh, and the Democrats, uh, we don't think that's an environment where many CFOs are going to be upping their investment or their employment budgets until they know who's been re-elected or who has been elected in November 2020. So, we tend to feel if you're going to take equity risk, now is the time maybe to lock in the outperformance of the, of the U.S. and look at global markets where maybe there's either better dividend income or some better earnings growth, particularly because we think 2020 will also see uh, the year of the starting of the regulation of the fangs in the U.S. Hmm. Moving into to a little more of the international scene, uh, one of the things that's been a big question here in the U.S. is will Brexit ever have any impact on the markets? We, you know, we certainly have seen uh, uh, impacts in the FX market, but uh, any impacts in equities have been limited. Is, is that something that the U.S. investor, are we going to begin seeing Brexit impacts uh, in, in 2020 that will affect uh, uh, international trade that affect uh, the U.S. markets? Um, well, I would certainly see the, the UK, if I'm honest, as, a, as an opportunity for U.S. investors. You know, we've seen sterling fall uh, nearly 30 percent in the three years uh, that uh, we've been negotiating or having this Brexit uh, event. And we would argue that, that sterling, even after the recent rally, is probably about 20 percent undervalued to U.S. investors. And given that I think that U.S. assets, sorry, U.K. assets rather – whether they be London property or, or the uh, London Stock Exchange, have generally underperformed by about another 20%. So in a world where one has to take some risk to earn a return, we think the UK for an international investor is a very interesting place to be looking because on a two or three year view, you might be getting a 40 or 50% return, half from the currency and half from the underlying assets that you're going to buy. Now that the uncertainty around Brexit is going to clear, we think quite quickly next year. Um, so any other advice that you'd have for, for just the, the retail investor as uh, uh, looking forward, uh, as you say, with uh, the real possibility of a recession uh, on the, on the a horizon, uh, maybe not imminent, but, uh, but on the horizon, uh, and some of the, uh, the other international aspects that are going on, how, how, how would you advise just a, a retail investor, uh, Michael Farr's Fred and Ethel out there, uh, to, to approach the, uh, the year? <laughs> 
Well, I, I, I think as I look into 2020, we're coming to the end of the Fed has got the back of the markets because we're at all-time highs. We've got some type of a deal with the Chinese, which I think the market has been hoping for uh, all, all year. Uh, even if one can say that Brexit uh, uh, clarity is starting to emerge. So when I look into 2020, I think a lot of the dynamics for, uh, for, for U.S. investors is the political risks are all at home. Uh, the policy risks are all at home. Uh, obviously, um, a, a, a more, can I say, challenging Democratic candidate like uh, Senator Warren might be problematic for many large parts of the, uh, the S&P. And so I think at the very least, I think uh, U.S. investors should be considering that the volatility that they have often been able to avoid in the last 10 years, when one looks at Brexit or you look at what's happened in Asia or you look at what happened in Europe three or four years ago, I think that volatility is coming home. Uh, and therefore, uh, they need to be prepared to be active, to be very clear about the positions that they're in and why they're in them. Uh, and if they don't have high conviction, maybe they ought to lower those positions and think about other things that potentially might hedge them against some of the volatility that will be coming next year. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, really, thanks, uh, uh, thanks for your time and your insight, Neil. Uh, the last question that we have, uh, of, of course, you know, what 80% of our uh, UK listeners all want to know, um, can anyone catch Liverpool this year? Well, I think it's it's a really good question, and, I'm, and you're you're um you're, you're talking to a Chelsea fan. And until <laughs> two weeks ago, uh, I would have said I would have said it's going to be a team with a dark blue strip. Either Leicester or Chelsea looked uh, looked likely to um to, to close them down. Um, I I think uh, unfortunately it is now Liverpool's to lose after this weekend's results. Um, but I think it is going to be very exciting once we get the full set of the Champions League matches next year. Liverpool have to stay fit to stay ahead uh, and so it'll be interesting to see the depth of the squads and, and who gets uh, who gets over the line in May. Neil, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, uh, Neil Duane, uh, Chief Strategist from Allianz GI. I'm here with Jack Perugian uh, from UCX Exchange. You see him on CNBC. You've heard him on the Farcast. Uh, Jack, uh, great, great to have you with us here at the end of 2020. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, you know how much I enjoy doing it. In the last time you were on the forecast, you were uh, predicted this uh, little melt-up, if it continues, I suppose we could call it a big melt-up, and uh, really uh, were very bullish about the first quarter of, uh, of 2020. Is there anything in this run-up to 3,200 that you've seen that, that changes your perspective of what we're going to see in the first half of the year? Not really. In fact, uh, you know, it kind of reinforces my original thesis in, in uh, in that we we saw a lot of um, a lot of portfolios that were underinvested going into the end of the year, and you know the the chasing of performance. I mean, it, you know, it got to the point where you could simply index your money in some cases and beat out many of these managers. So uh, a lot of these uh, portfolio managers are are now uh, what I would call uh, either they are they are fearfully buying, uh, and their fear is that they're going to be losing their jobs, uh, but. <laughs> But, go, but going into next year, uh, it might be a bit of a different story. I do see a, a bit of a euphoria going into the first quarter, but we're going to have to reevaluate after that. Yeah, what's your, what's your base case as the, as the year unfolds? Uh, obviously, the, the further out we look, the more uncertainty we have. But, but what, do you, what do you see happening after we sort of get over this, uh, uh, this euphoric hump here that we're, that we're climbing at the moment? 
Well, I think that we're still in that euphoric stage, and much of it also will depend on how quickly we get resolution with, with the trade tariffs and Brexit. People aren't thinking or talking much about Brexit, uh, but there, there's a lot, to be, a lot to be digested there, too. Now, if everything goes the way we would hope it goes, uh, we could see another 5 or 10% added on to this market within the first three or four months of the year. Uh, that's that's 150 to 300 S&P points. Mm-hmm. At that point, um, then I would probably take a step back. This is going to be, uh, especially during an election year, uh, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to watch those polls very carefully. And uh, and I'd be, I'd be inclined to, to take some money off the table come a, around April time frame and or put on a very large hedge going into the end of the year. But I do see us making uh, our high for the year in the first part of the year. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, speaking of uh, speaking of Brexit, we've as as things have unfolded, it really hasn't had an impact on the equity markets uh, substantially thus far. But we have seen fluctuations in the FX market. So how do you now that we've sort of uh, uh, gone gone past the first step of Brexit, now get into the 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 more extended negotiations and trade deals and so forth? How do you see that uh, that uncertainty playing out? What are the forces, and how much of that is going to impact the uh, the equity uh, well, market? I think none of it is really factored in, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, what's happened, primarily because of Brexit, primarily because of of what's happening with China, is that you've had capex put on hold. Uh, you know, you've had projects put on hold. CEOs are very cloudy and very guarded with some of their guidance. I think we're going to see an explosion of capex. Uh, remember, you're also talking about a, a, a European uh, customer base that, that has been suffering over the course of the last few years. And if indeed we see resolution uh, to all of these issues, and we're not looking for the, the best of all possible worlds, a, a perfect resolution, but we are looking for some resolution. And if we get it, uh, then it's going to be a wind in the sails of the market, and it's going to help the market get through that, that these first three or four months of euphoria, as I was talking about. Um, the real problem, though, lies in the fact that whenever we have an election year, if, if and, and if you go back as a student of the market and you pay attention, these election years become very, very dangerous, uh, whether it's 08, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, it's 2000. Um, you know, th- these are all years where we have to be very, very careful. Even even 2016 was a, was a very difficult year for the market until – uh, we started seeing some clarity towards the end, and people started getting uh, euphoric with with uh, with President Trump being elected. But the the, the uncertainty of an election year uh, makes the second half of of twenty twenty very very cloudy, in my opinion. Uh, but the first half of the year, I think we get that explosion of capex. We get it, it's a it's a string that's been loaded and and it's ready to actually get fired. Uh, you know, it, it's it it feels as if there are a lot of board of directors. There are a lot of CEOs that have been sitting on their hands patiently waiting for some kind of a signal, some kind of clarity. And if we get any clarity at all, uh, that could be a real trigger uh, for, again, for some serious CapEx spending. The, talking about clarity, do we, do we have to have a, uh, a Goldilocks uh, a perfect situation, or is it just any clarity that if we know that the tariffs are going to be X percent from now to the end of time, uh, if we know what Brexit is going to be, even if it's a bad deal, does that give 
corporations the clarity that they can invest with confidence that and get off of sitting on their hands. So I, I guess do we do we need to see uh, do we need to see everything rosy or just any sort of clarity at all to to move forward? I, I guess the real word we should use is not clarity, but but certainty there the, mm-hmm. if, we, if we start to get rid of the uncertainty and we and, and now you know what is actually happening the rules aren't changing you're not trying to to grab something that that's moving you're, you're a fish in water for example it, it becomes a very difficult target and uh once that happens and again uh you know it, it could be it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, you know a rosy goldilocks situation but you need some stability you need some certainty and that's what corporate america has been waiting for mm-hmm. uh, and again and, and i think it's it's a it's ready it's sitting on the sidelines and and that is probably going to be the the reason we'll, we'll probably see a quick 10% run uh, over the course of the first year uh, the first of the of the year next year primarily because it's going to surprise people um, and I think that and, and the market will not be ready for it, especially after a breakout year, which 2019 was. Mm-hmm. So looking forward, uh, what would you what would you really like to see happen in 2020, even if you think it's unlikely? And, and the converse of that, what what do you fear ha- could happen, even if very unlikely? But but what uh, what do you what do you most hope to see and what do you most hope not to see for uh, for the coming year? The most important thing for 2020 is the is the presidential election. Uh, you know, we have a there's an attack on wealth by certain people running for the Democratic nomination. If that ends up manifesting itself uh, and, and becomes something larger than than just maybe you know that voice in the wilderness on the left and becomes maybe mainstream to the point where they become nominated, then there is a real fear for the marketplace. Uh, let me put it this way: an Elizabeth Warren or or a or a Sanders nomination would probably knock the market down in and of itself. Mm-hmm. An election would take it down anywhere from thirty to fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So that that is my biggest concern and my biggest fear. Um, now, if you were to say to me, "Well, we might end up with a Bloomberg uh, as against Trump as far as a, as far as an election goes," well, that might change my perception a little bit because then it might be more of a win-win scenario for the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but much of it will depend on what happens during the polls, during the summer months. And again, election years scare me. And that's <laughs> one of the reasons that I always try to play defense. And, and, and you know me, I'm as bullish as they come <laughs> usually. But, but there are times where you actually have to be very prudent and, and election years are those years. Well, great advice there from, uh, from Jack Perugian. Jack, thanks so much for joining us and uh, look forward to having you on in 2020. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And we are here with our final expert of the Best Of Show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, And the expert is, of course, Michael Farr, uh, whose name is on the door. So, uh, Michael, uh, thanks for coming in on a on a Saturday morning. Uh, It's we're all so tremendously busy that uh, that we ended up having to record on a Saturday. Well, it happens. Uh, it happens, Harry. It's that time of year. And by the way, uh, if you want to get your name on the door, I did that by um, uh, going to uh, the uh, the hardware store <laughs> 23 years ago, and I had to buy. I had to write down, you know, uh, how many vowels I actually had to buy, uh, the L's, the R's, and everything. And then my father and I got a broomstick and stood out in the hall of my first office building. Uh, with a uh, with a screwdriver, and he held 
the broomstick and I would hold the letters and we'd put some tape on them and we'd tape them on the walls first and then we screwed them in and Dad and I did that in about an hour and a half in 1996. By the way, Dad just turned uh, 94 this past fall and I'm going to go take him to lunch today. So uh, uh, he, he did point out that the far name belonged to him and I probably owed him a <laughs> licensing fee. I, I hope lunch will suffice. <laughs> So, uh, looking forward, uh, we've you know we've heard from uh, we've heard from some of the experts that we've had on this year. What uh, what do you see as the forecast for the Fed uh, in in monetary policy in 2020? Uh, that we've we've had the three cuts. Are are is that enough? Or is the Fed going to change change direction, or do you really think uh, take Jay Powell at his word that we're they're on the sidelines? You know, uh, Harry, I've known Jay Powell for years, and uh, it has, I've always, it's always uh, been uh, well advised to take Jay Powell at his word. Uh, he's a very thoughtful guy. Yes, uh, the numbers are right now, I think, uh, supporting everything that the Fed has done so far and says that we're in the right position. We are seeing economic growth. We're seeing GDP growth of that around that 2% number. We're seeing inflation getting close to that 2% target for the Fed. Um, the uh, price uh, uh, deflator number that the Fed looks at is a little bit lower than the Fed would like to see. But basically, they say they're on the sidelines. And what we know is in an election year, they only have to be on the sidelines for about the first four or five months, and then they don't want to do anything that could be seen as influencing the election. So I think they're probably there. Interest rates, uh, said uh, Wells Fargo earlier this week, will not be adjusted by the Federal Reserve, by the central bank, through the end of 2021. Uh, that would be a great backdrop for markets. So we'll see. But I don't expect the Fed to do anything barring uh, some uh, catastrophe somewhere. You and I are both old enough to remember 1987, and uh, the bond markets broke before the equity markets did. Uh, do you see uh, any changes in the interest rates in the, in the broader bond markets outside of sovereign rates? You know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that interest rates should probably hold steady. Now, uh, one of the other factors about interest rates, as we've learned over the past couple of years, is what's happening with those other economies around the world. So if those other economies, uh, like in, in Europe, uh, Germany and uh, Japan and, and a lot of other places around the world have negative interest rates, then our interest rates remain still fairly attractive. As those, as those countries recover, so if we see the global economy get a little bit stronger, if we see Europe get stronger, if we see Asia get stronger, and those interest rates start to increase a little bit, then, our, then the, perhaps the flow into U.S. bonds will diminish. That means the demand for U.S. bonds diminish, and even though our economy is doing fine, we could see those rates drift a bit higher. Against that backdrop, uh, do you, what, are you, what is your forecast for the stock market? Uh, everybody, of course, wants to know what the market's going to do, and nobody, nobody can know. But what, what's your base case looking, uh, looking through not just the first quarter, but, uh, but into the rest of the year? Let me start by saying I got it completely wrong last year. Uh, I tend to always, uh, Harry, I've been giving these forecasts um, as, as long as I can remember and certainly more than 20 years on television and CNBC and, uh, and other outlets. Uh, and I always say, uh, well, uh, I expect a 10% year because that's always the safest default. And by the way, when you get to the end of the year, nobody remembers what the hell you said at the <laughs> beginning of the year anyway. And 10% sounds like that sort of not wildly optimistic but still reasonably optimistic 
Uh, and back when I was a stockbroker, you always have to be optimistic if you're going to sell something, right? You don't sell anything by telling people the prices are going to go down. <laughs> Here's a good way to lose money, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, so why don't you invest with me? No, I expect things to go up, and then you get folks to invest with you. So optimism tends to attract uh, uh, more flies with that bit of honey. I, I, I think uh, if we look at a stable economy and a Federal Reserve uh, that is on the sidelines and, and that that sidelines position is still pretty accommodative with these rates as low as they are. Uh, earnings growth seems to uh, be somewhat, uh, the outlook seems to be rosy anyway. Uh, you know, a 7% year actually makes sense to me uh, in the markets. Uh, I think you could see share prices up 7% by the end of the year. 10%, sure, it could, it, it could happen. And remember that by the end of the year, we start pricing stocks based on next year. So you listened to me, and when I talked about the top 10, say we were about 18 times last year. Interest rates, I mean, earnings went up 1.5%. Uh, the market went up 30%, and we're still at 18 times earnings. How can that be? We're 18 times next year's earnings. We've increased those earnings forecast by 10%. We haven't seen the earnings deliver. It's on estimated earnings. So we're judging, of course, the pricing of markets based on those future forecasts of earnings. I think that, uh, I think that probably we could drift a bit higher, but I wouldn't get uh, too much over my skis here in terms of expectations. So with that, what do you most fear happening, even if it's unlikely, with a, with a generally positive outlook? Uh, what, what do you fear ha could happen that, that might uh, change that? It's always the unexpected, Harry, is the biggest fear. Uh, markets hate to be surprised, and they haven't been surprised by much. And, uh, you know, uh, President Trump, um, uh, his style is very bombastic. And therefore, I think markets and investors have become largely, have, have, have grown to have calloused ears. Our ears now have calluses <laughs> uh, from the presidential rhetoric. And that goes to Capitol Hill, and we see that around the world. We've seen bombast from uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, we've seen some bombast um, from President Xi uh, in China. Uh, we've seen uh, bombast from the Iranians. I mean, we got bombast, and a lot more bombast <laughs> in the world. So we've, we've grown uh, a, a bit deaf to it, which is probably healthy. You know, ignore the noise uh, in the fish market and pay attention to the price of fish. It will be that thing that we, that we don't expect. It will be uh, a successful um, uh, nuclear launch out of North Korea. Uh, it will be uh, some... Uh, sort of, of resurgence of Ebola or something that you just can't imagine, something will happen through Brexit that will cripple the uh, British economy. I don't expect any of those things, and neither does anybody else, which is why they would be uh, detrimental to markets. Those are, the things to, those are the things to fear. Everybody wants to have a certainty about what's, uh, what's going on, but we do live in an uncertain world. So how, uh, what, what advice do you have for the retail investor going forward to, to take advantage of what we see as a generally positive outlook, but, uh, but to be protected if, if the, the worst does happen? For my participation in the, in the broadcast media, I want to apologize uh, because we have uh, done, I think, investors a fair disservice by having them focus so much on the short term, Harry, so much on the quarter to quarter. None of these things matter. 
I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a prediction right now, and I think we'll probably write about this, Harry, in the beginning of 2020. Here's Farr's big prediction, which is going to sound a bit ridiculous, but here we go. Uh, Dow 60,000 by 2030. Dow 60,000 by 2030. That's slightly more than a double from here. I think that that's possible. I think that it's likely. It's about a 7.5% market return. Takes us to Dow 60,000. Does that mean you can double your money over the next 10 years? That's what it means. And if you agree that that's what markets have done historically and that that's what markets likely will do prospectively over time with lots of peaks and valleys and there will be some very low moments as we make that next 10-year slog, um, if you think markets are going to double, why wouldn't you invest in them if you have a 10-year horizon? This is something that Warren Buffett has said for years. If you think that the basic thing that you're investing in is going to go up over time, why are you waiting so long to get the exact day so precise? Uh, yes, it would be very nice if we could all invest on a 10 or 20 percent pullback. Uh, last year, uh, there was a great opportunity on December 24th as markets were down a full 20 percent on the S&P 500. Did you invest then or did you think it was going lower? Did you say, uh, yes, Far, put my money in the market, or did you call me and say, Far, this feels awful to me. I'd like to wait, and let's at least get over the new year and into January to see what will happen. You can't see what will happen. Why do you want to see what's going to happen? You want to see what's going to happen because it's going to make you feel better, because it feels awful. The thing's just gone down 20%. Don't you think it could go down another 20%? Of course it could go down another 20%. Um, folks who invested last December 24th, I would guess, are pretty damned happy right now, uh, and it's well more than 30% higher from that December 24th. So John Washington used to say, uh, the best time to invest is when you have money, and the best time uh, to sell stocks is when you need money, and other than that, that's probably all you need to know. You can be careful about what you invest in. You can make sure that you invest in things with staying power that are going to be able to survive downturns so that you're not buying stuff at the thin branches. Uh, our top 10 list is, uh, uh, looks to be a pretty solid list to me uh, for the long term. We'll see. I remember something that, uh, that you said in an investment committee meeting uh, uh, a little over a year ago, and you said, it's, it's time that makes money in the market, not timing. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, that's... All day long. Did I say that? You said that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote it down. Hey, that, that is, I, li I like that. Uh, I like that. I should quote me. Uh, <laughs> I should quote me more. Uh, that's, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I am always cautiously optimistic. And one thing that I always try to do with clients, Harry, is say, please expect the market to go down 30% at some point, and not in the too distant future. So picture the market down 30% in June. And what does that mean from here? 30% off a of 28,000 Dow, 30%. I mean, that now is, is a big number, right? I mean, we're going to drop down below 20,000. That's going to be huge, right? Huge. Taking us down below 20,000 on the on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's big. That will be painful. Does that sound shocking to you, ladies and gentlemen? It, it probably does. But if you get that in your head ahead of time, that knowing that part of your investment future is going to be some point at which we will be down 30%, and I almost guarantee that it will be, then 
you're going to think back. You're going to hearken back and say, you know, Farr said that this would happen and that it wouldn't be the end of the world. Uh, we will endure periods like that, and maybe if we're really lucky, we'll have a little extra cash to put in even at those low levels. Money's made. What is it, Harry? Money is hard to make. Yep. And it's made over what? It's made over time. And uh, not by timing. Not by timing. That's it for me. Happy New Year, Harry. Happy New Year, everybody, and thanks for joining us on the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on this week's special year-end Farcast. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guest, Martin Barnes, Mona Mahajan, Jack Berugian, Jim Murio, Jay Bryson, Neil Dwayne, Steve Weiss, and Dan Mahaffey. This time of year is especially busy in our industry, and I am grateful they were willing to share their time, their expertise, and their energy with me as we've recorded this series of interviews over the last week. And we are grateful for you, our listeners. We've produced over 100 episodes of the Farcast, and the support we receive from you is an honor. It is a privilege to bring you the show every week, with experts and insiders sharing their insights into what shapes our world. Our tagline is Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We're honored that you bring us into your world every week. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know your thoughts on 2020 and what you'd like to hear as we continue Season 3 in January. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell. And please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we could be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at hjennings at farmiller.com. And I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.